knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And um, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Rob McKenzie about his new book, Identifying the Seed. And a couple things that I wanted to mention, Rob is offering a special deal on his book to our listeners. So we'll talk about that later on in the episode. And we'll have information in the episode notes on how you can get that special deal. I wanted to mention a couple things before we get to the interview. First of all, I again, I wanted to do a shout out for Sola Gratia shirts because they're doing a special deal for Theology Gals because I know a couple of people have already purchased some and they're they're great shirts, but they have a lot of really sound good ones, the five solas and some other stuff. Another thing I wanted to mention is I have a podcasting friend that does a podcast on homeschooling. They're doing a documentary on homeschooling. It looks great. And they have a Kickstarter. So I'm going to link that in the episode notes too. And we have a little commercial we'll be playing for them. And also, I did also want to mention, I was on a couple of podcasts recently, and I wanted to give a shout out to those regular reform guys on suffering and the sovereignty of God, and a couple others, and I'll link those in the episode notes. And um, I think that's about it. So we're going to go to the interview now. Hi, and we are back with Rob McKenzie, and we're going to be talking about his new book on dispensationalism and covenant theology, identifying the seed, the seed. And Rob, just before we get started, some people might not be familiar with you. You're, of course, on the podcast, Theology Simply Profound, which we recommend. Um, but can you share a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, well, of course, first of all, let me say thank you for having me. Uh, I listen periodically to, to Theology Gales. I have for a long time. And uh, I just I love the uh, two-part series you did on the Federalist Vision. I thought that was excellent and very needed. I was very thankful that you guys did that. But yeah, my, my background is uh, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a, in a dispensational Christian home. Um, I went very uh, faithfully to church, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, Awana, 
uh, all that so youth group. Uh, I was on the Bible quiz team, and I went to uh, college. Went to a Bible college. Got a you know, my bachelor's in uh, pastoral, the uh, Bible pastoral theology in dispensational school. And it was right after I was in that that my wife and I both would uh, become reformed. And uh, also right after that, I, I started. I'm in publishing. I work for InterVarsity Press, and have for about 15 years. I, uh, when my wife and I became reformed, we uh, we're very thankful to eventually find a Reformed Baptist church for about four years. And uh, then we moved back home, back to Illinois, because we were, went away to school. And once we got back home, we by then knew we should be in the OPC and uh, went straight to the OPC and haven't looked back. So obviously you have a background in dispensationalism, so you understand it very well. And why did you write this book? What what encouraged you to do that? Well, I wrote the book uh, mainly because I kept having the same conversation over and over again. Uh, all of my family, my wife's family, are still dispensationalists, and so we'd get questions about Reformed theology. And I found myself writing uh, to answer these questions and or having conversations that would take a long time, and then uh, a week later, someone else would ask me the same question, and so I'd spend another hour writing the same thing. And uh, I just saw so many different uh, misunderstandings in, in people. They would ask me, why does Reformed theology believe X? And and the thing is, we didn't believe that. And so I'd have to spend half my time trying to explain to them why we didn't believe what they think we believe, and then explain what, what we do believe. And then with uh, my good Reformed friends, uh, I was getting questions about dispensationalism, and it was the same kind of thing. Why do dispensationalists believe X? Well, they, they don't believe X. So I would want to then spend half the time telling them why dispensationalists don't believe that and what they do believe. So I thought this would be a good, uh, a good thing out there. I didn't, there wasn't a book like the one I've written. If there had been, I would have just directed people to that book. We, as you said, I, I do a podcast with uh, Bob Trillo, uh, my pastor. I serve as an elder with him. And we did a podcast series on dispensationalism where uh, just trying to explain dispensationalism to reformed people. And while we were doing that series, I was writing the book, and so it was very helpful. But I, I just want to bring uh, more understanding to both sides, whether you're dispensational or you're reformed. I want you to be able to understand what the other side believes. Rob, my husband and I really enjoyed the Theology Simply Profound series on dispensationalism. It was so helpful to us um, as we were reforming. And I know we have a lot of listeners who are digging into studying the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Can you give us just a brief thumbnail sketch of what dispensationalism is? Sure. Um, I'll try to be as brief as I can. I can <laughs> um, it's funny to say brief because because uh, the series that you all did on dispensationalism was 13 episodes long. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. And we've actually done two follow-up episodes since then. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also did an episode on replacement theology that kind of goes along with that. Dispensationalism, in a nutshell, it looks at scripture and divides it into seven different dispensations. God has worked uh, differently in different times with different people. And these dispensations, they will build on each other. They have, uh, there's a people that God has, has put into this test and they are to fulfill certain requirements 
such as Adam uh, pre-fall. He was supposed to tend the garden and be fruitful and multiply and not eat from the tree. That was the rules of the dispensation. And of course, he failed. And every dispensation has a failure. And at the end, uh, God will bring judgment. Now, of course, judgment in the first dispensation is uh, withheld, and we are, they're given mercy and grace, and we have the promise of the gospel. Uh, but other dispensations will have swift uh, judgment, and eventually uh, God will prove through these failures in these dispensations that mankind will not be obedient to God without grace and mercy from God, and that the only way man can be saved is by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because that's a nutshell version. <laughs> I know it's part of what makes dispensationalism such a big topic is that there's a lot of different brands. Is that true? Mm. Can you talk about that for a second? Well, there are a lot of different brands, although really um, you, we can look at dispensationalism in a very cohesive way, even with the different brands, uh, because there's a lot of continuity between them. And the two main uh, dispens- is dispensationalism, what we understand, uh, more of a Ryrie uh, form, and uh, Charles Ryrie uh, b- being the popularizer of dispensationalism. And then what, what came about in the late 80s is what's called progressive dispensationalism. And progressive dispensationalism moves closer to reform theology in a, in a lot of ways, but it still keeps the core because the core of dispensationalism is, is that there's two peoples of God, that God has uh, Israel as one of his uh, groups of people, and then the church. And there's different, um, God has a different relationship with Israel, and God has a different relationship with the church. And although there might be some differences between progressive and what I call Ryrie dispensationalism, there's, there's enough continuity, especially the distinction of Israel and the church, that we don't, we don't really have to look at them as being that separate. There are some minor forms of dispensationalism, uh, Pauline dispensationalism, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Acts 15 dispensationalism. These are such minor positions within dispensationalism that um, when, I, when I discuss these things in the book and in the series, I really don't talk about them much because there's such a minor view, um, and, and most dispensationals look at them as, as almost heretical, um, and maybe rightly so that I don't really get into them. So you can look at dispensationalism really more cohesively than I think a lot of people think. Yeah, I have some family that they, they're they dispensationalists. They don't even believe that baptism in the Lord's Supper is for the church. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not. <laughs> you know, sometimes I, in our group, we find people who will say, yeah, I'm a dispensational because they grew up in a dispensational church, but they don't have a clear understanding. And more than once, uh, we'll hear someone say, but isn't dispensationalism just about Israel and just about eschatology? It's not really anything more than that. And while those are aspects of it, it really is a whole system, right? It's a completely different system. Um, I mean, still, there, this is a, an in-house discussion between Christians, so it's not about um, whether or not they're Christians, but it's a, it, it is a completely different system. So can you just kind of outline some of the main differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism? Well, as I mentioned, uh, dispensationalism looks at uh, the two peoples of God, Israel and the church. God, uh, Israel is seen as God's people. 
who at one time were to accept the kingdom at the time of Christ and did not. And because of that, God, God put his working with, with the Israel on hold and started a new group of people, the church. And at some point, he'll end that program with the church, and he'll pick up his program with Israel again. And because of that, there's a lot of, and, and I say this, and I know my dispensational friends will probably disagree with, with this wording, but it's almost a, it's a very discontinuity uh, version of uh, theology and the Bible. Uh, there's, it, it, it divides, and they would admit this, they divide the Bible into different sections. And if you don't divide the Bible into different sections, you're not interpreting it correctly. So there, there seems to be more discontinuity between scriptures. Reformed theology has, has much more continuity, seeing all of scripture as one um, sovereign plan of God, that there are two covenants. You're either in the covenant of works or you're in the covenant of grace. And, and that's for everyone, all the people of the world. You're in one of those covenants. Either you are in Christ or you are dead in Adam and a sinner. So in Genesis 3.15, when, when the promise of salvation is given, uh, we see the God working toward that, that fulfillment of that promise. And eventually, the removal of the curse, the remaking of the heavens and earth. And that's the whole scope of Scripture. So there's that continuity. But with dispensationalism, it's it's just more choppy. I can I can I can give you more differences. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I think we have time for some more differences. Okay. Um, one thing that's interesting uh, when you talk to dispensationalism or dispensationalists, uh, one one thing they'll say against covenant theology is that dispensationalism is uh, a they they hold that all of Scripture is central to the glory of God. And that covenant theology is central to the salvation of man. Now, that's that's actually not true. And if you look at the catechisms and and, and the Reformed creeds and with the emphasis of Reformed theology, actually the glory of God is paramount. But they're looking at uh, Scripture as God segmenting and uh, having these these dispensations where they're given these rules. That so that he might have glory from people by keeping these rules, and so that's where they're they're getting that. And of course, Reformed theology is looking at God sovereignly administering His rule, and that through that we're glorifying God, and all all people are glorifying God. So that that's kind of a, a subtle difference, but it becomes uh, very prominent when you have a discussion with when Reformed and Dispensationalists have a discussion together, that seems to come to the forefront, the glory of God versus the salvation of man. One of the main differences is, of course, how we interpret Scripture. Um, Reformed theology has uh, holds to actually a literal uh, hermeneutic. We, we believe that we should uh, interpret the Bible literally according to its grammar, according to its um, according to the, the context of the, of the book, the context of the, the writer or who the writer is. Um, dispensationalist kind of looks at that the same way. They say, we want to interpret the Bible literally, and the context has a big part of that. But the major divide comes when it, it comes to how to compare Scripture. Reformed theology looks at the New Testament and says the New Testament, as later revel- revelation, interprets the Old. The Old Testament was type and shadow, 
and it gave us um, prophecies and metaphors and um, you know examples, all, everything pointing to Christ. So we get to the New Testament, and then you have Paul and John and Jesus himself looking back at the Old Testament saying, this is what was meant. You know, Jesus says he was the manna that was in the wilderness. He was the rock that was in the wilderness. He was the pillar of fire. And uh, he, he says he is the true Israel. So we see all this um, Old Testament uh, language that's actually pointing to Christ. And dispensationalism looks at the Old Testament and actually says, no, the Old Testament is to interpret the new. Now, they would never say it like that. They don't use that kind of language. But I was just reading uh, in a commentary uh, from Dallas Theological Seminary, the, the, the Bible Now It's Commentary, which is put out by Dallas. And on their commentary in Hebrews, uh, it's actually talking about the new covenant. And what, what the uh, writer says there is that while the new covenant is spoken of here in Hebrews, we know that it, it's actually for Israel. And what he meant was that that's talking about a future time, the millennial kingdom. So he's looking at the book of Hebrews that is saying that the new covenant has come. This is what Jeremiah was talking about. And here the dispensationalist says, yeah, this is for a future date, even though the writer of Hebrews is saying it's now. And Reformed theology says, no. He, the writer of Hebrews is looking back to Jeremiah saying, now is the new covenant. The old covenant is vanishing away. In fact, it's become obsolete. So that's just a couple other differences. Rob, one of the things that really stood out to me that was a a difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology in um, when I listened through your podcast series was the the understanding of what happened as far as God giving the land and how that mm-hmm. promise was fulfilled. Can you talk about that one for a little bit and maybe a little bit about the the verses um, in Joshua where we, where we see that the land was given? Right. Well, now you've you've gone straight to the heart of the book and the series, and I think the dispensationalism and covenant theology is how we interpret the Abrahamic covenant. Um, yeah, there, there are promises made to Abraham uh, in the covenant. Uh, kings would come from him; his name would be named, be great. Uh, he would be given this land. His people would be as uh, many as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, um, and the dispensationalism looks at that and says that has to be fulfilled in the seed of Abraham, which is Israel and covenant theology says, no, that has to be fulfilled in the seed. That's Christ. So there's a major disagreement between the two sides. Uh, and this, and where, where you come down on how the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled, I think is the, is a key between the disagreements that we have. And in dispensationalism, uh, you can get to the place where, uh, at least I did when I was when I was making my journey from dispensationalism to Reformed theology, that you're hanging on to this the, the one thing that in dispensationalism uh, is said not to be fulfilled that, that is the land. Uh, God said, Abraham, I will give your children this specific land, and He lays it out, and. God, of course, keeps his promises. And when with dispensationalism, they say that God has to keep his promises and he hasn't given that land, and so that land is, has to be future. But while I was reading Joshua, and I think it's Joshua 21 uh, verses uh, 43 to 45, and there's several other verses, but this is the main, the main uh, verses. And it says, 
that all the land was given. All the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers, were fulfilled. Not one word of the Lord failed. All came to pass. So here in Joshua, and it's not just Joshua, Joshua 11 talks about this as well, That, um, and I think Joshua 23 as well. All the land that God had promised to Abraham was given to the people of Israel. And it, I mean, even within in Joshua, you have uh, all the divisions of the land, all the families you, you, you meticulously go through. Uh, and this person was given this lot, and this was given this lot. And it's divided up. And Joshua is saying that, that uh, God fulfilled his promises, land was given, all the peoples were um, defeated. And the land had rest on every side. So for me, coming out of dispensationalism, that was kind of one of the death nails for me. There's others. There's one more really specific one. But that one just, I didn't know what to do with that as a dispensationalist, except to say that God has fulfilled his promises. Mm. You know, what's interesting is that is the exact point that my father, as a dispensationalist, emphasizes in almost every conversation that we have about this. That's that's the thing that he talks about the most. You talked about this a little bit before, but I thought maybe you could expound on it in the first chapter of the book. And let me just say first, I appreciated the tone of the book. It's not... You know, I'm just going to attack dispensationalism, tell you why they're wrong and we're right. There is very good explanations of everything, and I think gracious. But you say in the first chapter that both the dispensationalist and the covenant theologian uses the same foundational rules of hermeneutics. But obviously, we come to different conclusions. You talked about this a little bit already, but I think adding a little bit more how we approach Scripture differently that we come to such different conclusions, even though we are still using the same approach in areas. Yeah, well, that, that of course, is very important. Um, in the book, I know I, I just kind of quote R.C. Sprawl, because I figure why, why reinvent the wheel when you've got someone like R.C. Sprawl that lays it out so well in, in his book, uh, Knowing Scripture, that you know we, we come to the Bible and we say, this is literal language. Um, and we take it literally, but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be metaphors and similes and um, the different genres of scripture become very important. Um, Genesis, you know, most of it is historical narrative. The Psalms is, is much more poetic. You don't interpret historical narrative the same way you interpret the Psalms because it's different genres. And a dispensationalist is going to agree with that. Uh where it becomes, uh, where we really divide is um, when we take uh, later revelation and we don't take that as, as being able to interpret earlier revelation. I think a good example is Jesus at the Sermon of the Mount, where he's saying, you know, you've heard it said, you know, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, if you hate somebody in your heart, you've murdered. Now, we don't go back to the uh, Exodus 20 and the commandments, and we say, okay, here it says, thou shalt not murder. We don't go back to, to Exodus and say, well, that doesn't include that if you hate somebody in your heart, you haven't murdered them. That's always there. It's not brought out until Jesus does it on the Sermon on the Mount. But that doesn't, but somebody 
in Israel that hated somebody in their heart was breaking that commandment even back then. But now we have greater revelation so that we can better understand the commandments. Uh, Hosea 11 is another place where um, it said, um, out of Egypt I called my son. And Jesus applies that to, to himself. And it's, it's, uh, we don't go back to Hosea and say, well, this isn't talking about Jesus. This is only talking about Israel. No, we go back to Hosea and say, not only is this talking about Israel, but this is also talking about Jesus. And I, I use those examples because actually dispensationalists would agree that that's the proper way to interpret it. But then when it comes to, like I was using the example of Hebrews, Hebrews is saying that the new covenant has come. And the dispensational writer from Dallas is looking at that saying, well, we know that in Jeremiah, that this is, this is promised to Israel. So even though it's in the book of Hebrews, we know it's not for the church. It's not for us today, except for the fact that we are saved um, through Christ, that that part of the new covenant, the fact that we are uh, redeemed as, and become Christians through Christ, that that part of it is active. But the rest of the new covenant is not going to happen until the millennial kingdom. And the reason why they're saying that is because Jeremiah and the other prophets have made that prophecy. So they're taking the Old Testament, the the types and shadow uh, revelation, and they're making that predominant over the greater revelation. And that's really key to why we come to many different conclusions. I know that we've talked already about the fact that you um, grew up in dispensationalism and you've, you've shared a little bit about one of your um, final nails in the coffin. Can you tell us though, was there a first nail? Was there something that made you start questioning dispensationalism and start, start taking a look into covenant theology? Um, yeah, I, I think I definitely had a different uh, route. Um, I did not want to change my theology. I, I didn't want to not be a dispensationalist. Um, I, I just kept reading scriptures, passages. Um, and it was, of course, at the beginning, it was soteriology. So I would read John 10, John 6, and Ephesians 2. I would say these passages just, they can't be saying what they're saying. Because if they do, then Calvinism is right. And I know that Calvinism is not right. <laughs> therefore, they can't be saying that. And I, I just kept reading scripture. And uh, finally, I just couldn't fight it anymore. That scripture, um, one of the great things about dispensationalists is they have a high view of scripture. It is the inerrant word of God. And it is where we get our theology from. And so that was my mindset and continues to be that this day. Uh, so I, I was able to uh, unwillingly come to Calvinism, uh, kicking against the goads the whole time. And while I was doing that, um, I, I started to see other things in Scripture that just did not uh, add up to a, a dispensational uh, structure of Scripture. Um, the the Unity of the people of God was probably what really started to do it. Um, but then it would be uh, the Abrahamic covenant, how that was fulfilled, the land. Of course, uh, as I said, that, that the, 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 the verse in Joshua, the verses, the, the chapter 21, uh, I remember uh, when I read that and it really sunk in because I, 
you know how you read some verses and you think, <laughs> I've read this how many times, but it, it just, I never got it. And it's so clear when you read it. You know, not one word of the Lord failed. All came to pass. All the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all came to pass. And, you know, and one thing you learn in dispensationalism is that all means all. And it, there was no other way to, uh, to understand that except that God kept his promises to Abraham. Uh, and then, you know, even then I had a, I'd go to Hebrews and you start to see that the land that they were given, they actually got, Israel was given the land. But Hebrews tells us that land was typological of a greater land, of a better country. And that's the new heavens and new earth. But you asked about a, a, a first nail, and I'll give you a final nail. <laughs> the final nail for me was Ezekiel's temple. Uh, because, of course, in dispensationalism, uh, the non-progressive kind, uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 to 48 talks about this new temple that's going to come, and that has to come in the millennial kingdom. And I was reading uh, Ezekiel, and I was reading those passages, and I got to the place where it talks about the offerings. And in dispensationalism, you know, that, that temple in the millennial kingdom will be giving animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices, with Christ sitting on the throne. And there's this new temple. And Ezekiel says very clearly, these are sin sacrifices. There are other sacrifices, too. But it specifically says sin offerings. Well, Hebrews says Jesus is the last the last sacrifice. How can there be sin offerings given in the millennial kingdom after Christ has been the final sacrifice? And I couldn't that that just didn't register as a dispensationalist. That just couldn't be um, because I'm reading Ezekiel literally. That's saying there's literal sin sacrifices. I'm reading Hebrews literally that's saying Christ is the final sacrifice. So which is it? And the more I read the New Testament, uh, and Ezekiel talks about how there's this spring that comes forth from the throne within the temple. And it, it first sits up to your ankles, then your knees, your waist. And eventually, you, you, it's too deep. You can't, uh, you can't wait it. And then I looked in the New Testament, and Jesus says, you know, believe in me, and out of you will flow rivers of living water. And it just real, I realized that that's Ezekiel's temple. And, of course, all the places that actually says Jesus is the temple, we are the temple. And it just, it was, that was the final thing, and then everything else just kind of fell down. I love what you said about how sections of Scripture just suddenly made sense. I know my husband and I had the same the very same reaction that you're talking about, the same experience of, I mean, for me in particular, you mentioned Hebrews. That was a big one for me. My entire life, I felt like reading in Hebrews always gave me a feeling of, I don't understand anything that he's saying. None of this makes sense. And then coming into studying covenant theology, suddenly, I mean, literally, just about every single day, my husband and I would talk at the end of the day, what did you learn today? What did you read today? And we would say, I read another thing that suddenly makes sense all of a sudden without any help. Like, <laughs> and, and a lot of times it was Hebrews. So um, it's just kind of a wonderful feeling to realize I can read this and understand it because I have a lens that makes sense. Yeah. 
it's it's it really does come alive after that. Mm-hmm. What are some common misunderstandings that each have of the other side? Uh, one that I hear from certain dispensationalists, not common, but they'll say covenant theology is replacement theology. <laughs> what are some of the misunderstandings or misrepresentations, you know, like that one? Yeah, well, that you know, that actually is, is one of the biggest ones, is uh, that, we, that we believe in replacement theology, which, of course, we don't, uh, that, that the church has replaced Israel. And um, the another... Well, I mean, of course, you get the Calvinistic Arminian ones as well. You know that you don't believe, uh, you know, you don't believe in prayer. You don't believe in evangelism. Uh, you believe we're mankind or we're all robots. Uh, you get that a lot. Um, so there's those typical ones because dispensationalism has been traditionally Arminian, semi-Arminian, uh, not really Calvinistic. That, that's that's more of a of a new thing within dispensationalism that really came about in the late '80s with with uh, progressive. Re- dispensationalism um, and now there are uh, I mean I talk about this in the on the podcast um, in the series that I, I really a Calvinist shouldn't or a dispensationalist shouldn't be a Calvinist they're just inherently uh, should be opposed to each other but there are many Calvinists that are dispensationalists so somehow they make it work uh, one of the uh, problems one of the things I, I kept hearing from people who are reformed about dispensationalists was that dispensationalists were antinomian. And that's that's a complete misunderstanding. Uh, first of all, anybody can be antinomian. Uh, anybody can can actually not care about the law of God or believe that the law of God is for us. But when dispensationalists say that we are not in the dispensation of law, we're in the dispensation of grace, they're not saying that the moral law of God does not apply to us. But that's what my Reformed uh, brethren, that's what they were saying about dispensationalists well they don't believe that we're because we're not under law so therefore we don't have to actually be obedient to any of the moral law of god but we have to remember with dispensationalists is that um well they and another problem that leads into the misunderstanding is that dispensationalists will say the ten commandments are not for us today and you you say that to um somebody who's reformed and it sends their head spinning because we, the Ten Commandments are, are very prominent within our understanding of, of the law of God. But for dispensationalists, nine of the Ten Commandments are for us today. The only one that they would disagree with is, is the Sabbath. So even though on one side they're saying the Ten Commandments aren't for us, that's for Israel, they're still adhering to nine of the Ten. And of course, you know, any of the uh, what we understand as as moral laws of God, or you know, you should you shouldn't have sex before marriage, and uh, of course they even take it to extreme. A lot of dispensationalists have roots in in uh, the fundamentalist movement, uh, which would lead to uh, uh, you know uh, all alcohol is wrong and all smoking is wrong, and you shouldn't play cards and you shouldn't dance and women shouldn't wear pants. And I mean, not all dispensationalists uh, are like that, and that's kind of become very passe within dispensationalism now, but that's what I grew up in. Um, not the radical, um, I mean, women still wear pants and jeans and all that, uh, but the, you know, you don't go to the movies and you don't, you know, uh, you don't listen to rock music and, you know, that kind of a thing. And that was so tied in to the dispensational structure of the people that, that my 
I grew up in the IFCA, if, if, if that was Independent Fundamental Churches of America. It's what John MacArthur's actually in. But uh, so that there's there there still is a high understanding of um, adherence to the law of God, even maybe a little overboard. Uh, but when Reformed are saying, well, they don't believe in the law, it's just misunderstanding. There, I mean, there's, there's others. Would you like me to give more? Or you know, one of the things I'm thinking about as you're talking about the law is the Lords of Salvation debate, which was between dispensationalists, where you did have um, the Zane Hodges view, which was antinomian in, yes. in some ways. But then the other side of that, the MacArthur view, added works to faith. And and so, you, and it was, and I know that even MacArthur him, himself, you know, saw that this was something that was in dispensationalism, this debate that the Zane Hodges view could come out of what they believe. Well, right. Um, yeah, and, and when I was becoming uh, Calvinist Reformed, uh, you know, it was for me. It was a, a couple year journey, and I, I read the Gospel according to Jesus and the Gospel according to uh, Faith Works, which was his second book. And you're right, M- MacArthur in Gospel according to Jesus definitely blurred the lines between uh, faith alone and faith plus works, and that was pointed out to him. And he actually revised the Gospel according to Jesus, and in the second edition, he actually cleans that up a lot. His book on Faith Works, which is the Gospel according to the, the Apostles. Is a much better work, a much better book, and it, it, it really does kind of take away, take that whole blurring of the lines away. And, he, and of course, at that point, this is MacArthur becoming a Calvinist when he was writing these books. Um, yeah, Zane Hodges, Miles Stanford, um, these guys on the easy believism side, um, and I think it was uh, Ryrie himself who, who said that you can become a Christian one day and the next day become a, an atheist and live a, a horrible, uh, you know, sin-filled life and then die and go to heaven because you made that one, you signed the card, you made that one decision. Um, but uh, most, most dispensationalists, even in how they would actively uh, think of people and conduct themselves in churches, would uh, probably be in the middle of between the easy believism and the lordship salvation as far as how they work through it. But of course we were and Colleen, you and I were talking a little over email a little bit, um, you know, about the young restless and reformed. And of course I, I kind of think this is where it really started was, was the lordship controversy that people that when they really understood the lordship and, and as it would work out, that's kind of what led people into the more, uh, into Calvinism eventually and, and reformed theology. Yeah. I appreciated in that you guys have an episode and I want to know any of the theology simply profound episodes we've discussed tonight. We're going to put links in the episode notes. So if you want to hear a more thorough explanation of the dispensationalism, we highly recommend that series, but I appreciated in the young restless and reformed one that you talked about kind of the two phases of that, because I was in the beginning of that with with Christians United for Reformation, which the White Horse Inn would cure, yeah, which yeah. the White Horse Inn. And so actually, I have, I have a couple friends and a family member that contributed 
to the book, Christ the Lord, the Reformation and Lordship Salvation, which Michael Horton edited. And, you know, and they said, yes, he did make a lot of those changes, but maybe not far enough. And I think, and I don't know if this comes from dispensationalism, but I'm curious your thoughts. One of the things they outline in the book is the confusion of law and gospel. So at times where MacArthur calls things gospel that we would see as law. Well, the, the main reason why they have that kind of confusion is because they don't have those distinctions, the idea of law and gospel, not, not like the Reformed do. Uh, they just don't see it. Um, for them, that would, be, that would be taking two different dispensations and, and putting them together. Um, you know, law is, is the, there's a dispensation of law and there's a dispensation of grace or gospel, if you want to put that in there. But when they talk about the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace, those categories that they put it in are, are not anything like the Reformed understanding of law and gospel. Because we're saying that, that we see law and gospel throughout all of Scripture, and they they're just don't have that category that they can work with. And so you had MacArthur, who was reading all these Puritans at the time uh, when he was writing those books and going through the Lordship thing. And he was also hanging out with uh, and, and talking to Michael Horton and Kim Ritterbarker and uh, you know the White Horse Inn guys and um, R.C. Sprawl, and they were all friends, and he was having these conversations, and they were using language that he was picking up on, but his dispensationalism was filtering it. And so he was trying to explain the, the, that, that our, we are saved by grace alone, but not by a grace that is alone, but he was trying to explain it with some dispensational baggage of that of the distinction between law and gospel as dispensations and not necessarily as the categories that uh, those of us who are reformed would put them in. Right. That's very helpful. Everything you just explained there. Well, you know, we're talking about a bunch of recent history, relatively recent. Mm. Um, Why don't we back up for a a second here and see, um, can you give us sort of a history of dispensationalism? How did it get started? Where did it come from? Yeah, sure. Um, Dispensationalism began in 1830. And of course, dispensationalists would disagree with that. Uh, But it began uh, in 1830 with a man by the name of John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby was uh, raised in London from Irish parents. He was not a Christian, uh, became a lawyer, uh, was saved right after uh, he was done with university, and ended up in the Anglican Church, was uh, sent to Ireland as to do uh, to pastoral mission work within Ireland. He, because he was the new guy, he got sent to all the, uh, the hollers and uh, the places that the other guys didn't want to go a very Catholic area, very staunchly Catholic area. And, uh, but, but Darby was very passionate about uh, the gospel and he, you know, rode his horse uh, hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to different places. Uh, And he had many converts. He was a very passionate speaker, very, uh, loved loved the poor, and uh, one, uh, one of these uh, trips he was about to leave, and his horse threw him against a door. When in 1830, medical uh, medical recovery was not the easiest. Uh, he had a sister who was married to a very wealthy person in Dublin, so he would spend several months there uh, recuperating. And his uh, his sister and her husband were Christians. He had a very extensive library, and so. He read, and he read and read and studied, and while he was doing this recovery, he came up with what we understand as the system of dispensationalism. He had been a, a historical premillennialist, 
uh, also known as a chiliast. And, uh, but, but really a lot of, of what he developed in the system was very novel, had not been there before. The idea that God is two peoples, um, Israel and the church, that uh, he would rapture out the church uh, at some point, and there'd be a seven-year tribulation period, there'd be a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and uh, that Israel would uh, inherit uh, the land and the new earth, and God would uh, have his church as his heavenly people. Um, that was that was something that was started. And uh, shortly after that, one thing that, that England had done is they decided that any convert to the Anglican church would also have to give allegiance to the crown. And uh, he was in Ireland. A lot of Irish Catholics were not willing to give allegiance to the crown. So he saw his converts. Uh, his, he had been having many converts, and now he was getting no converts. And so he left the Anglican Church and started the church that we know as the Brethren, the Plymouth Brethren, and because there were other people who were also unhappy. So it wasn't just him. Many other leaders and other uh, congregants pulled out. The Brethren movement is interesting because it, it really doesn't have any kind of ordained, um, at least the, the generic understanding of who the Brethren are. It doesn't have an ordained uh, clergy. People would show up and uh, they would take it in turns or they would wait and to see who would the spirit was moving in and they would get up and preach. And of course, as often happens, uh, different churches started to have different leaders. So that person was preaching every week and so it kind of naturally develops into a little hierarchy. And again, Darby was, was a passionate person and uh, often rubbed people the wrong way. So he would end up leaving <laughs> that movement. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't, he, uh, it, it's a movement with independent churches, so it's not like there was a split because you can't have a split if there's nothing united. But uh, some other churches went with them. Really, dispensationalism didn't catch on as a system within England. Darby, he wasn't married, so he had time to uh, travel and uh, preach and do lectures. He came to America several times, five or six times, and had his main convert was a guy named uh, Reverend Brooks in St. Louis, who was a, a uh, Presbyterian, and uh, Reverend Brooks organized. He had his own uh, magazine. He would put out about dispensationalism, and the, he helped organize what's called the Niagara uh, Prophecy Conferences, which the first one was in Niagara, New York, and that's where it got its name. It would move around the country, and I think it lasted for about uh, ten or eleven years, right around the turn of the century, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and it was very predominantly was prophecy. Uh, but it was also feature uh, focused on on a kind of a premillennial state. So you had people that were historic premillennialists, and you had dispensational premillennialists, which are two very different systems, even though they have some continuity. And through that, Reverend Brooks had a convert uh, named C.I. Schofield. And C.I. Schofield, uh, who is a very interesting person, which we don't have time to get into today, but uh, very uh, passionate, also a lawyer, and he would develop uh, – a study Bible. And that study Bible, he would put um, a lot of the dispensational notes that he had learned from Brooks, who had learned from Darby. They put those into the study Bible. And uh, that was, it was Oxford that actually published that. And it quickly took on a uh, life of its own and became very popular. One of his main converts was a man named Louis Bear Schaefer. And uh, I haven't, there's, there's several lectures I've heard, or actually they were chapel services by Louis Bear Schaefer. Um, so it's really interesting listening to him speak. In the late 40s is when these lectures were at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, which Louis Barry Schaefer actually founded. 
And in it, he talks about how uh, C.I. Schofield charged Lewis Berry Schaefer with the protection of his study Bible, saying that, that God had determined this time in history to give him that study Bible so that the dispensational system could be understood and spread throughout the world because Christ was returning soon. Didn't get, didn't give a date, um, but that, but he really believed that that's why uh, dispensationalism came along at this time. And Lewis Perry Schaefer um, took that to heart and always defended it. And as I said, he started um, Dallas Theological Seminary, which um, would produce many of the teachers that we would understand dispensationalism are kind of the, um, what really would like Charles Ryrie and John Walverd and um, there's Dwight Pentecost and Zuck, these guys that would come, many, many others that would come through Dallas and a couple of the other universities are kind of like it. And what would really put um, dispensational teaching on the map. Uh, now that, that's kind of the history of the, the people there's a different history um, culturally that if you'd like, I can talk about uh, as far as the rise of dispensationalism. Yeah. And can you include in that how it's become so popular in American evangelicalism? Yeah. And if you, if you can work it in, talk about the verse about um, rightly dividing the yeah. word of God. I thought that's where you're going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, was it second Timothy uh, 215, is that what that is? 316? Mm -hmm. Yes. Anyway, um, yeah, the, when when Lewis, when T.S. Schofield, start with him, C.S. Schofield actually wrote a pamphlet called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth using that verse from, from Timothy. And in that verse, uh, it talks about how that, you know, when we rightly divide, they, they, they latch onto that word and they say, look, Scripture is given to us in divisions. And that's the seven dispensations. And if you don't understand that the word of God is divided into these sections, you will not interpret the Bible correctly. You don't rightly divide. And so often when we, you'd asked about misunderstandings uh, before, uh, one of the main misunderstandings that dispensationalists have of reform people is that we don't take the Bible literally and that we allegorize everything. We spiritualize the Bible. And, and you'll hear this from many different um, dispensational pastors and writers that the reason why we spiritualize the Bible is because we want the Bible to say whatever we want it to say. We have a system, a covenant theology system, and we're trying to superimpose that onto the Bible. And the reason why we're trying to do that is because we're not willing to rightly divide word of God. Not really. And, and they, that kind of means interpret, but it also means divide because the seven different dispensations are divided into scripture. And it can even go to a place where you have one verse with four statements and those four statements, each one talks about a different dispensation. And if you don't understand that it's talking about different, different dispensations and you're going to get the verse completely wrong. And I, and I want to say that that's uh, that kind of hermeneutic within dispensationalism is is the rarer kind, but it's not. It's actually the more common way that it that the Bible is interpreted, and that's one reason why covenant theology. When we try to have these conversations, and we go to Scripture, 
and we we point out in scripture well here's scripture hebrews hebrews is saying this and they'll say well that's going over three different dispensations so that's why you're getting that wrong because you're not rightly dividing when cs gofield uh, had his study bible put out and one thing that dispensationalism teaches is that things are going to get bad and before christ comes back things are going to keep getting worse and timothy talks about that you know in the last days, perilous times will come. And it talks about the different sins of people. And for dispensationalists, often they'll take that verse, that last days reference, and say that that's talking about the final days before the return of Christ. Now, from a reform perspective, we're going to say that, well, yes, but that started at the time of Christ, that Christ came. Those were the final days beginning. And so we are in the last days. And for dispensationalists, they say, well, the last days will come, but it's a later version. And there's, and so C.S. Schofield was saying, hasn't been the last days until now, but now we're in the last days. And so there's that, there's, there's that inherent, we are now um, living biblical prophecy that is now being unfolded, that has never been unfolded up until now. And so there's this, it's ever-increasing prophetic revelation from God, not, not adding on to the Bible, but an interpretation of the Bible that nobody before dispensationalism could see. And it, so again, it's teaching, look, things are going to get bad. And what didn't help, or at least maybe what did help, is that uh, toward the end of the 1800s, the, within Reformed uh, Covenant theology, you had a lot of people that were more post-millennial. And so there's this... The postmillennialism is going to teach that uh, that we're we're headed toward that golden age, and here's dispensationalism coming along saying, "No, things are going to get worse and worse and worse." Now, as an amillennialist, I have some sympathy with that, uh, even though I'll, you know I'll be an optimistic amillennialist. Right? <laughs> so, so here's dispensationalism. It's going to get bad, and then what happens? World War One breaks out, and so dispensationalists are saying, "See." It's getting bad. And World War I was horrific with mustard gas and machine guns. I mean, the Battle of the Somme and, and you know, just generations of people wiped out. Europe lost its generation, maybe two generations. Just horrific, horrific. Trench fever took more lives than bullets. It was, it was very bad. And dispensationalism saying this is prophetic utterances coming forth. This is prophecy from the prophets of the Bible that we're seeing unfold here. This is what Jesus was talking about. This is what Paul was talking about. And now it's happening. And so then World War I goes away. And within the Reformed community, of course, people went kind of went from a post-millennial view to more of an all-millennial view. Uh, part of it was that reason, that World War I. And then what happens? World War II breaks out. World War II breaks out, and dispensationalism is saying, see, we have the answers for this. The world is in chaos, but we can tell you why it's happening. And a lot of people were drawn to that. And then, of course, World War II ends, and Israel becomes a nation again. And in those lectures, those chapel services that I have from uh, Louis Perry Schaefer, it, it's, it's before... The, the Israel's become the nation before the UN makes the charter, and he's saying to the the 
you know, the, the classes of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary with some of the most prominent dispensational teachers either in the class or teachers that were there at the time. This is Lewis Schaefer at this time is 68, 60, somewhere around there. He's, he's retired. He's actually just about to publish his systematic theology. And he's saying, if Israel becomes a nation again, the times of the Gentiles are over. And, God, and what he's saying is God is going to uh, soon take away the church and restart his prophetic clock for Israel. He says, if that happens, and then of course it happened. And the, the pessimistic understanding of the world and Israel becoming a nation again was kind of the, the cultural soup that people were in that made dispensationalism uh, very attractive. And then after Israel becomes a nation again, even though we're, you know, there's Korea and Vietnam, but, but what's actually more impactful was the Cold War. Because, um, you know, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you uh, got to enjoy the uh, A Thief in the Night movies, the, the series Thief in the Night. I did. I did too. Okay, yeah. I mean, my goodness. Yep. Fantastic. Bad acting at its best. And <laughs> It's, I just rewatched them last year. It was, it was so. It was. It was oh, so, they gave me nightmares. I, I could never rewatch them. <laughs> we used to have. I don't know if uh, if you guys had this. We uh, we always had watch night services on uh, on uh, New Year's Eve, and they were watch night. They were, we were waiting to see if Christ would return at New Year's Eve, and uh, of course, you know, as a teen, it was always um, frustrating because we'd always have the Lord's Supper right at midnight, and I I think that we did that so nobody would kiss. That was my, nobody told me that. That was my theory at the time. <laughs> but we would watch the Thief in the Night movies. And and the, those were 1970s Jesus movement kind of movies about the rapture and the seven-year tribulation period. But but the idea of the Cold War, um, one of the problems with, with dispensational, for dispensationalists was that America is not mentioned in prophecy. And because America is not mentioned in prophecy, you, you had one of two views. Either A, America was going to get invaded by Russia and, uh, and, and no longer be America. So kind of like the, uh, the, um, the movies where, where Russia would come in and, and just you know, completely take us over. A Red Dawn, that's it, the, the Red Dawn movie. And, or Russia would blow us up with nukes. It was one of the two. Because America wasn't in prophecy. So we were always waiting. I mean, uh, the people I knew were more on the America's probably going to get blown off the map. And so there was that, there was that tension of things. Look, we were told things are going to get bad and things have gotten bad. And now we're just waiting for them to drop the bomb. And that's when, of course, it gets really bad because either you're dead or, of course, I think everybody kind of thought that just before that would happen, the rapture would come. And that's what we were always hoping for. The rapture would come before we got annihilated by nukes. There was one other, I, I'll mention this one other thing. Um, 1970, a book came out called The Late Great Planet Earth. And that book in the 1970s, now that was all based, that book was based on looking at, at Scripture, looking at Ezekiel, looking at the prophets, looking at the book of Revelation, and actually taking um, news, the, the, the news of the day, and listing it out as because Iran has done this and Russia has done this, 
because this has happened and this has happened. Well, this fits in with Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation. And so uh, we can see that Christ is going to return and Christ is going to return. Uh, I, I'm not sure what, what date he said at the beginning of the early seventies, I think was what he was saying. Um, but that book outsold the Bible in, in the seventies. I think, I think recent cuts like 20 million copies of that book has sold. And it's because people were, 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 were taking this in and there was such a fear, especially within the cold war that, the theology of dispensationalism fit that that fear, and I, I say that with some hesitation because I don't want uh, my my dispensational friends to think that that the reason uh, only reason why people are dispensational is because they were afraid. Because I don't mean that at all. I'm just looking at it from a broader cultural level. Um, because dispensationalists uh, are going to say that we're we're, we're dispensationalists because it's it's what the Bible teaches, and uh, you know I, I I don't think they're lying when they say that. So does that play into what's made it so popular in American evangelicalism? Yeah, I think, I think just that, you know, why do we find it? Um, why do we find it in, in, in historically reformed denominations? Why do we find this mixture of, of reformed theology and dispensationalism um, you know, the, the idea of the seven-year tribulation period of the rapture, how, how can we go to a Presbyterian church and have people uh, reading the Left Behind series uh, as if they're doctrine? Um, because I think there's this overall um, cultural um, setting that has, has kind of sunk into America that accepted some of the main features, rapture, seven-year tribulation period, thousand-year millennial kingdom, that kind of thing. It's kind of seeped into a lot of, of uh, the, the kind of Christianity within America that is kind of a more of a surface level. Um, as When we're looking at it from a broad perspective, when I was uh, becoming a, uh, a Reformed guy, um, you know, I had Lewis Sperry Schaefer's Systematic Theology, a seven-volume Set and I sold that, and I bought John MacArthur's um, commentary series. And then a few years later, I sold that and bought uh, Calvin's commentary series. It's my my theological journey. Um, since I needed to reacquire my uh, or a set of the Lewis Berry Schaefer systematic theology because I was I was really uh, studying, um, you know, getting ready to write the book, and I, I was able to get it from a Presbyterian church that was selling off their old library. Well. What in the world is Lewis Perry Schaefer's systematic theology doing in a Presbyterian church? Wow, that's that's really something else. And you know, I find in uh, a lot of Christians that I talk to that maybe aren't well versed in theology that will consider themselves a dispensational, but really, what they really think about is the eschatology. They're thinking about the rapture and the tribulation and Israel and maybe not grasp all of dispensationalism. Right. Right. And I think it's, it's interesting what I hear from reformed people. Um, Cause I listen to, I've listened to thousands of sermons over the last probably six or seven years on, on the different sides um, in writing the book and, and doing the podcast and uh, reformed people. I hear them always say, well, you know, the majority of America are dispensationalists. Well, when you listen to dispensationalists, what they'll say is that the majority of Christianity are covenant. Hmm, that is fascinating. Yeah. 
Um, we have a couple of questions from our group, and and uh, this first one is really interesting to me. Um, I'd be curious to know what dispensationalists do with imputation since they do not believe in the covenant of works. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, well, it depends on who you ask uh, within dispensationalism. Uh, you, As I said, you, it's becoming more and more common for dispensationalists to be Calvinists. And uh, Calvinists are going to have a, a good understanding of imputation, the imputation mm-hmm. of sin. Um, it, to give a, what has it, his, how has it historically been taught? And you're going to get a mixed bag um, because some people will have a very good, what we would understand as a reformed biblical uh, understanding of imputation. Other people uh, might not even use the term, might not even, other areas of, of the, of dispensationalism. You don't hear that term much in dispensationalism. The, the teaching on original sin is um, in the same boat. If uh, they're Calvinists, then they're going to have a good understanding of, of uh, original sin. I think because dispensationalism has been historically Arminian or really semi-Arminian, the understanding of imputation has been that we are born uh, sinners. So we are born, we are born with the with the desire to sin. And everybody will sin, but you have to reach an age of accountability before that kicks in. That's kind of been the majority view within dispensationalism. So. It's imputed. The reason why we're born sinners is because of Adam. Adam sinned because he sinned. We're, we're all sinners. But when Reformed people say we're all sinners, we mean that we are guilty of from Adam. Adam sinned. We're guilty of that sin. Dispensationalist means Adam sinned, and so therefore we all will also sin once we reach the age of accountability. And I, you know, what you just said really. Um uh, my personal experience matches with what you just said. Um, it's kind of like what you were saying earlier that the, some of them don't really have this category. I, I never heard the yeah. term imputation until becoming reformed. So. Right. Yeah, me either. And just one last question from our group. She wanted to know if assurance is approached differently between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Oh, that's a great question. I'm not even sure if I dealt with that in the book. Um, I might have. I don't think so. Uh, yeah. It, yes and no. Um, from when this, I, I've been using the term semi-Arminian and uh, dispensationalists who have been predominantly semi-Arminian uh, believe in what's called eternal security. So we, you, you will yourself in, you know, you make the, the, the choice of salvation, uh, but you can't lose that salvation. Now, you, you have other dispensationalists that are much more Arminian, and therefore you can lose your salvation. But I'm looking at it from what is the majority. And the majority w- would say, no, you can't. Um, that doesn't necessarily, of course, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. That we are elect through Christ. That we are sent by the Father to the Son. The Son will not lose us, and we will persevere till the end uh, because, because our salvation is all of Christ and not of ourselves. But when it comes to actual assurance, if we can put it down to the nitty-gritty, I found that the same uh, fear 
of not being saved, losing your salvation, not really believing, you find the exact same fears in dispensationalism that you do in, in Reformed. Um, I know people in Reformed world that uh, struggle with assurance every day, and they probably always will. It's just kind of who they are and what their nature is. And it's the same thing in dispensationalism. You'll find people that just always struggle. I think when in Reformed world, what's helpful is when you go to your pastor. And if you are struggling with the assurance, go to your pastor. Go to your elders. Talk to them. They, they want you to come talk to them. And they should point you to the cross. They, they point you away from yourself and they say, what has Christ done? Amen. Where's your salvation? Your salvation is, is not from you. It is from Christ. And dispensationalism, though, they're often pointed to themselves. Um, they're pointed to, well, what day do you, did you get? What day did you sign that card? And you'll often, uh, dispensationalists are often encouraged to write their name in their uh, their Bible, or write their write the time and date that they were saved in their Bible, and that way, if they're doubting of their salvation, they can open up and look at that date, and they say, "No, on June second at ten a.m. at a youth retreat, I threw the stick into the fire and I made a decision for Christ." And so they're pointing inwardly to their decision, and that's where they're supposed to find their assurance. Now they're not saying that that because of the work that you did, you saved yourself. They're not saying that. They're saying it's all of Christ. But it's it's not the most helpful um, or I think biblical way to look at how we should uh, think of the assurance of our salvation. Yeah, that was always difficult for me growing up because I can't remember a time that I did not believe in Christ. Um, growing up in a Christian home, I, I even have memories at four years old of understanding my sin and being repentant. And I just did not have that time. And at the same time, I have a family member that has left the faith, Mm. but some of the other family members say, but we were there when he said the prayer. So we believe he's saved. Yeah. Yeah. That's just not helpful. It's not helpful for your family. It's not helpful for the individual. Right. Well, I know that you are offering a special deal on your book uh, for our listeners, and we're going to have information on the episode notes where you can email Rob and get the book. And I I think you said $9 plus $3 shipping and handling. Yes. Which is... Yeah, in, in the United States. Yeah. Yes, let me say that so we don't, because we do have listeners across the world, but we just, we highly recommend this book. It's not only going to give you a better understanding of dispensationalism, it's going to give you a better understanding of covenant theology. That's, that is what it was designed to do. I, I wrote it um, so that somebody who was covenant could read it and get a better understanding of dispensationalism and somebody who was dispensational could read it and get a better understanding of covenant theology. Um, I, I wrote it so that when people are fighting at Thanksgiving, they can say, no, no, no here, just go read this book. Yeah, <laughs> I may bring it to Thanksgiving. Yes, exactly right. We are going to pre-order our snack. <laughs> just, there you go. just hand it out. This is Stocking me saving suffers. one family at a time. 
That's <laughs> well, my Thanksgiving, my Thanksgiving table is um, the dispensationalists that I explained that don't even yeah. do um, communion and baptism. And then we have kind of the typical dispensationalists and then um, my dad. <laughs> so I'll just call him Mr. Dispensationalist converted from Orthodox Judaism. And then we have the Lutherans. Then we have the Reformed, and then my mom is pretty much Reformed Baptist now. So, oh, but we always have just wonderful, gracious, and um, encouraging discussions. Thankfully, not been not been a fight except for me and my dad on Israel. So, we thank you so much for joining us. I want to also encourage our listeners to listen to the series that. Theology Simply Profound did on dispensationalism, which we are going to link in the episode notes because it's so excellent. It's uh, what we've talked about here, but more, a far more thorough treatment of it. You get to listen to me saying things that that makes Bob's eyes actually bug out. Just <laughs> that was yeah, probably, like, it was one like of, a cartoon. <laughs> probably one of the most endearing parts. Uh, aspects of the series to me is all of Bob's reactions. <laughs> and they're all completely honest too. I was they actually are. surprised <laughs> at how, how shocked he was at different times. Cause I would say something, you know, dispensationalists believe this and he just, and I, I think, well, this sounds normal. This is what I grew up with. Just, his mouth would just stay open and he'd stare at me. Like, you gotta be kidding me. I, 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 I love it before, because, he was he was emoting to you what we're feeling when we listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. I do want to say just real quick with about, about the book that it is also available on ebook. Um, so it's available on Kindle. Um, in that way, there's no special on that. I, I actually can't offer a special on that, but uh, but it's all it's nine ninety nine on Kindle in case people um, don't like uh, you know paper or holding. Yeah, that's things. great to know. So is that on Amazon? For that that's an Amazon yes. okay so we we will link that uh, also and you know one of the things that we have talked about on theology gals is that we want to encourage kind gracious honest discussions about our differences and I think this is a great place to start if you're a dispensational if you're somebody who holds to covenant theology I think it would it's a great tool for being able to do that. Thank you so much for joining us and everything we talked about will be in the episode notes and we just strongly encourage everyone to go out and purchase this book. It's I will say it's not a if you're somebody who's overwhelmed by theology, it's not going to be like overwhelming so deep that you're not understanding what it's talking about. It's it's very understandable and um I and very enjoyable to read. So, okay, thanks. Well, thanks for coming. Angela and I will be back with our um, last segment. Do you believe in homeschooling? Here's your chance to help spread the word that homeschooling is good for students, it's good for families, it's good for America. Go to schoolhouserock.com/slash Kickstarter and join the movement to spread the word about homeschooling through movie theaters nationwide. From September 10th until October 12th, you have the opportunity to partner with us and show the world what homeschooling is all about. Visit schoolhouserocked.com slash Kickstarter today. So before we go, I have kind of a different yeah about that, Angela. And I know you, I don't think you've even seen this. I got to give credit to our friend Jean for sending it to me. 
And oh, Jean, what are you about to do to me? <laughs> she always has the best. Like, she does. <laughs> she finds these great things. And it is about Survivor, the TV show. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> so she said, she sent it to me and said, did you see this? Okay, so this is kind of interesting. 20 castaways are divided into two groups of 10 strangers, the David and the Goliath tribes. Castaways <laughs> make up the David tribe have overcome adversity, while the castaways on the Goliath tribe capitalize on their individual advantages and use it against their opponents. <laughs> so what I find about interesting is that, you know, we've mentioned a couple times it's in our intro on David and Goliath. So even in just regular society, there's this understanding of David and Goliath, you know, go out and kill the Goliaths in your life. And so now they're using this in Survivor. <laughs> this is pretty comical. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you said, we do have it in our intro. In fact, my kids, this is kind of funny. They, uh, every now and then they play podcast and how they play po podcast is they basically just yell at each other. You're not David That's <laughs> funny because of it being in our intro. So yes, this is, uh, uh, wonderful, um, moralization of, of old Testament characters going on here. Right. And it's kind of interesting how just in general society that there are stories that people know, like most people are going to know David and Goliath mm -hmm. and they might not know the entire story, but they're going to know that it has something to do with this big mean guy who's a bully and <laughs> David who has to take care of it, you know, and mm -hmm. And how they're um, doing that. You know, people know about Jonah and the whale or or different things like that. Right. And so I, I just found it interesting that, that that's what they're <laughs> using. I, I'm now picturing your children get invited over to the, the neighborhood vacation Bible school and they do the David and Goliath story. And they say, and you know, <laughs> now you have to, you have to kill the Goliaths in your life. And, and your son screams, you're not David. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yes, they, they, they definitely enjoy the Theology Gals intro. It wasn't that long ago that um, my husband and I, this is probably just a couple of months ago, uh, we were out on a family bike ride um, and my kids ride in a trailer that's attached, attaches to my husband's bike. And they got started playing podcasts as we were riding, riding along on the trail. And they, it got to a point where they were yelling at the people who were coming by the other direction from us and they were yelling at him the hey the bible's not about you <laughs> oh, oh we just got the biggest chuckle out of it fortunately i think we were going fast enough i don't think people could necessarily make it out what they were saying but we could <laughs> be like what's wrong with those children what the bible's not about me <laughs> Uh, that that's really really um, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, so that's our quick yeah about that. Uh, <laughs> on and I'm sure you can go on sermon audio and look up David and Goliath and find a, a good sermon in its entirety 
on on David and Goliath. You know, one thing I didn't mention in the beginning, and I should mention it now because it kind of goes with the subject here, but recently I went on Andrew Rappaport's show and he uh, responded to our, now he's a dispensationalist. And in fact, we had Andrew on our podcast as a dispensationalist to explain dis- dispensationalism for, from a dispensationalist perspective. And so he had me on to talk about the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology on the Sabbath. So that was that was kind of interesting. And I think on when... I see sometimes in these discussions online, like whether it be about paedo-baptism or the Sabbath, that they try to jump right into that thing. And you really have to step back and say, okay, but we approach things like the law differently. Mm-hmm. We uh, have a different understanding of the Ten Commandments and things like that. So we tried to explain that and do so in a respectful and gracious way. So, right. And don't forget to order Theology Gals t-shirts if you're interested. I did add hoodies and long sleeve shirts and mugs. So there's some more products on there. And and if you would like to support Theology Gals, you can support us a few dollars a month on Patreon, um, which is also linked in our episode notes. We appreciate you joining us and we will see you next week.